Hello and welcome. It's Friday, the 6th of March, 2020, and we're back with a very special episode 140, because as promised, we've got a very special guest today, the one and only Jason Levine, Executive Director at the Center for Auto Safety in Washington, D.C. Um, I actually had the chance to meet with Jason almost a year ago during my one-month stint in D.C. when I tried to sort of connect with the who's who of the automobile and mobility space, and including and especially, of course, those folks neck deep in everything happening with autonomous vehicles, specifically, of course. So Jason and I had a great chat then, and we've just had a fantastic conversation now. I say now we recorded this uh, on Wednesday. Um, it's about a 45-minute conversation where we touched on about as many things as we could cram into such a short, well, relatively short discussion. Well, it was long for the podcast, short insofar as the wealth of knowledge and experience Jason brought to the conversation. So obviously I, you know, I frankly would have loved to have gone on for at least two times that length. Um, let's see, uh, before diving in and getting started though, just a friendly reminder to please follow me on all social media at autonomous hogue. Rather more pressing though, is if you haven't yet had a chance to check out our incredibly huge international survey on the consumer acceptance of autonomous vehicles, please do head over to our website at hogandco.com. That's H-O-A-G-A-N-D-C-O. And at the top of the page, you'll see a blue banner. Click that. It'll take you right to a very simple Google Forms survey. Uh, Look, it is pretty in-depth. It'll probably take you about 10 minutes or so to complete it. But the data we're collecting on this is extraordinary. And if we're right, this really is going to be by far and away the largest survey of its kind in the world. And it's really critically important stuff to understand. So um, that's the benefit to us. The benefit to you, frankly, is, well, these are really kind of in-depth questions that I think will pleasantly surprise you and give you pause before you answer, because they're not all readily obvious answers. And they're going to cause you to kind of reflect a bit on your real thoughts and indeed your feelings with respect to many of these topics and these questions. So Nat, Nat, I think you're going to get a lot out of it yourself and you're just going to find it quite interesting. So yeah, I really would love for you to check it out. And obviously, crucially important to us, please, if you like it, do make a point to share it with all your friends, your colleagues at work, and everybody else you can think of. Right, what else? Um, I think that's about it. Why don't we just dive in and get started? Episode 140 with Jason Levine, the Executive Director for the Center for Auto Safety in Washington, D.C., begins now. Hey, if you're in the autonomous vehicle or mobility space, don't forget we've just recently launched our new AV and mobility strategy consulting firm, Hogan Co. We've got partners in Amsterdam, Paris, and right here in San Francisco, as well as associates around the world. All of our members are either PhDs, attorneys, engineers, or startup founders with extensive experience in the autonomous vehicle and mobility space. If you have any questions or you'd like to chat further, please check out our new website at hogandco.com or visit us on all social media at hogandco. That's H-O-A-G-A-N-D-C-O. When you need me 
mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Three, two, one, and we're live. Okay. So, Jason, really great to uh, chat with you again. Obviously, it was what, I guess, last summer that I was able to, uh, we, we met up at your office in D.C. So, um, really thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for being here at the end of your day. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be yeah. here. My pleasure. Um, look, I, I think it'd be really just interesting for listeners to get a little hint of your background, at least, because obviously being, well, kind of a big deal in the world of automobile generally, specifically automobile safety at the Center for Auto Safety. Um, I would assume there's a bit of car guy in you as well as in me and perhaps a lot of the listeners. So if you can give us a bit of your background, how you ended up here, that'd be pretty interesting. Sure. So uh, let me first talk a little bit about the Center for Auto Safety. We are a consumer advocacy organization. We are member-based. Uh, feel free to come join us at autosafety.org. We were founded in 1970 uh, by a, uh, a joint effort from uh, Ralph Nader and Consumers Union with the idea that there needed to be a dedicated organization that was uh, supported by and funded by and dedicated to consumer interests when it came to car safety and vehicle safety issues and everything from consumer protection issues to um, the regulatory structure of how cars are designed, constructed, and performed. And so ever since, we are now into, this is our golden anniversary, this is our 50th year. We've been working on exactly that. And so, you know, we are based in D.C., but we have members across the country and our, our efforts and and. Activities over the course of, of these five decades of, uh, you know, everything from fighting for lemon laws in every state to I've uh, seen that recall repairs are made for free for consumers to um, individual or large pieces of legislation that really focus on making vehicles themselves safer. Uh, our, our general efforts have, have relatively always focused on, I will say always, but almost always focused on making vehicles safer for passengers uh, and drivers and pedestrians, as opposed to um, thinking about some of the more behavioral things. We've always found that, you know, changing technology as hard as it is, is still often easier than changing people. And um, that's, that's a good quotable. <laughs> yeah. It's something that, that has, um, you know, we, it, it's something that, that over time continues to, to, to bear out. Um, and so, you know, where we are on a daily basis is everything from talking, you know, just like we have for all these years about basic consumer protections uh, relating to uh, everything from salvage cars to uh, how can there be improved transparency when it comes to uh, lawsuits around uh, defective cars to um, getting defective recalled cars off the road. Um, to uh, everyone's favorite topic, and obviously something we'll talk a lot about today, which is autonomous vehicles. So, you know, we sort of run the gamut in the vehicle safety space. If it touches on vehicle safety in one form or another, we probably deal with it. And then as far as my personal background, I, I'm an attorney by training. 
Uh, I've come from a consumer protection background. Uh, I spent um, a bunch of different time at uh, four different federal agencies here in D.C. over the course of two presidential administrations. And the longest uh, piece was at the Consumer Product Safety Commission as chief of staff, among some other roles. And so, you know, I come to vehicle safety with actually more of a um, a consumer protection bent uh, and a consumer advocacy bent than necessarily um, a gearhead, though certainly, uh, you know, I, I enjoy cars as much as the next person. <laughs> Sounds about right. Very cool. Well, look, I got to say on a personal note, I don't know if I mentioned this when we met in D.C. Um, so what, right when I was finished, I've done two Lemon Laws myself. For, oh, okay. For, uh, one was at the very end of law school and the one was, I guess, what, three or four years ago with a new car my wife and I got. So if only for Lemon Laws. Yeah. Uh, yeah I'm quite a big fan. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah well, we, you know, we're, we're glad to hear it. It's, um, it's one of those things that it is uh, until you, you need it. Uh, you know, you don't really have a lot of familiarity with Lemon Law, but it's, you know, there's really no excuse for a vehicle that is literally essentially defective as, as it as it rolls off the lot to you. Uh, shouldn't be something that you can return and, and get uh, get your money back. And so we're proud that they're there and they sort of constantly need upgrading and updating. And that's something we try and work on across the country when we can. Yeah, no, exactly. No, that's great. So, all right, well, then, as you alluded to, let's dive into these, this, this whole new world of, of AVs and kind of future mobility generally. Um, I don't know if I told you, but I actually saw you in a, at a congressional hearing in D.C. Okay. I was invited to attend. And so, you know, that was pretty big deal for me. That was really great uh, to see you there to speak about it. And obviously, you, you know, this is a while ago, so I don't remember the particular topics. I remember there was a remarkably tragic story being discussed about a gentleman who had tragically lost his son in a car. The issue being cars should be able to warn, you know, drivers of occupants still in the car or something mm-hmm. like that. It was a horrific, horrific uh, yep. experience to, to witness. Um, but but with respect to AVs, um, look, there's obviously a lot of risks, a lot of dangers, but also a lot of tremendous promise, potential. I always describe it as the biggest step change in humanity since the Industrial Revolution. Um, let me just leave it there and kind of get your overview take on where we are now and where we're headed. Wow. Well, that's rather open-ended, but sure. Um, I mean, I think the, you know, where we are now depends on which lens one chooses to look through. When you, when you talk about autonomous vehicle technology, there's, I think the latest estimates I saw are something on the range of 80 different companies are testing some type of uh, AV tech uh, on public roads in the United States. And I believe there's somewhere in the range of 1,400 to 1,500 test vehicles that those 80 companies are operating. And, uh, you know, as I'm sure your listeners know, there's a pretty wide range of the capabilities, even of those test vehicles. Uh, No one is quite at the level five sort of technology yet, but there's quite a bit of experimentation at the the level four or what is generically understood as as level four uh, on the SAE scale. so, you know, that, that's one way to look at AVs. Uh, they're, they're being tested on the road um, every day. Uh, another way to, to think about it, another framing is how do we think about it from a, from a regulatory and an oversight perspective? Should there be new standards? Um, if, there, if there should be, uh, what should they be? How should they be written? Where should they be? Um, you know, should they be at the federal level? Should they be at the state level? Should they be a combination? 
Um, and then perhaps another lens is, is talking about um, vehicles that we personally would not describe as uh, as autonomous, but things that would be, um, uh, for, you know, level twos. Uh, so you think about uh, Teslas and, and maybe the Super Cruise from Cadillac um, and, and, and some, you know, GM. Um, and so, you know, again, it depends on what you're talking about, t- Will, uh, and what people are interested in focusing on gives a sense of where we are now. Right. Yeah. So I'm glad you already mentioned the issue of, of obviously regulatory side of things, uh, as I, I'm sure we did discuss then. So I had sort of been running with a thought the past year or so that, you know, as an aviation fanatic too, um, I think there's a lot that can be learned from the aviation world. Obviously the FAA is why aviation is now the safest, well, Flying in a commercial plane at cruising altitude is arguably the safest place you can be within the globe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and it's largely thanks to the FAA and uh, you know other organizations around the world, the ICAO and IATA and so on. Um, so, so I've often started arguing that I think eventually we're going to need to see an entirely new administrative branch, effectively dubbed the FAVA, because, I mean, what do you think? Uh, a box on wheels or a tube with wings, especially one that crosses interstate lines, what's really the difference and to the extent that testing is now effectively in state's hands as i think they should be i mean as a sort of silicon valley type entrepreneur all these years i mean certainly i would support that but i have suggested that once a manufacturer finally dips into level four for consumer um, use at that point we really need to have a federal regulatory framework in place specifically for avs what do you think of that um, you know, I think it's certainly worth exploring. I mean, the the reality is um, that would be one way to go. I, I mean, it's not clear to me that you couldn't do things within the current regulatory structure. And that is for, for those who aren't aware, generally speaking, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, which is an agency within the Department of Transportation, sets vehicle uh, vehicle design, construction, and performance standards at the federal level. So um, testing performance requirements for vehicles, for passenger motor vehicles, are set by NHTSA. There's some other agencies within DOT that set um, standards for things like heavy trucks. Um, and that's the current structure. And then at the state level, you have um, rules that dictate operation issues. So, you know, who gets licensed, what takes to qualify a license, um, speed limits, uh, you know, performance of the vehicle when you talk about things like emissions. Um, and there's a little bit of a state and federal overlap there. So could one create a brand new agency? Uh, sure. Well, one could. I mean, I think the 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 rationale for that would be it's a totally different animal and therefore it should have a whole new approach to it. And there's probably some value to that. I think the reality, however, is that we are looking at a, from our perspective, a long integration. You know, there's 280 million passenger vehicles, uh, passenger motor vehicles uh, registered in the United States right now. Um, Cars last on average about 12 years right now. So even if tomorrow uh, Waymo or whomever else perfected level four and the day after that they were given clearance to start selling them or using them in a commercial fashion, 
we're still looking at, uh, at uh, decades probably until we don't see uh, what we call level zero, level one vehicles still in operation. So uh, there's going to need to be that integration period. And if you're creating an entirely uh, new agency, how would that interact with the existing agencies? Uh, raise some other questions. And there's also sort of a limit to resources and interest in creating um, new uh, oversight structures uh, inside the federal government um, that make me skeptical of, of the um, uh, the willingness to do that. But, uh, you know, uh, stranger things have happened. We now have a space force. So who knows? <laughs> Good point. Well, look, without going off into too deep of a tangent on this, I mean, is there any sort of historical analogy we can look at? I mean, to your point about levels zero, one and two, and indeed even three, really, you're right. It's probably going to be quite a few decades. I think we can all agree on that. But isn't there an, uh, an unless clause that we might suggest, which is unless things get mandated to kind of expedite this transition, right? So speaking historically, you know, looking historically, obviously it was a really fast replacement rate for, I mean, granted the numbers were far smaller, mm-hmm. um, but a fast replacement rate from obviously horses and carriages to the first cars. Um, I get it. It's almost an apples to oranges comparison, of course, just due to the sheer difference in scale, the numbers involved. But if it were deemed to be indisputably necessary for public safety, then one could imagine some sort of a legal mandate that would indeed expedite that transition, no? Uh, sure. I, you know, I, I by no means would suggest that it's a bad idea from a theoretical standpoint. I mean, I think the reality, however, is it, it's hard enough to get new laws and new rules passed and promulgated uh, within existing structures. Um, so to create a whole new structure um, may have some uh, utility and validity, but at the same time, you know, recognizing that some of the existing expertise is going to be needed in the new structure. And so are you duplicating or are you sharing those um, those capabilities and, and that historical information? And then keeping in mind, what we certainly hope from a policy perspective is the need to look at autonomous technology, autonomous vehicle technology, pardon me, uh, across different types of motor vehicles. I mean, right now, um, from a... Um, federal policy perspective, we think, unfortunately, there's been a complete separation of a conversation around passenger motor vehicles uh, and what most people think of as, as heavy heavy trucks and, and commercial vehicles, buses and, um, you know, 70,000 pound uh, semis. Uh, and, you know, and, and from our perspective, there needs to be a, a, actually a, a much greater conversation around how these things interact. Uh, both on on the road and literally with the road itself, which leads to another piece of the puzzle, which is you know our highways, our infrastructure is going to need to be made smarter, literally. Uh, and we talk about vehicle to infrastructure communications, uh, and that is something that is also housed uh, sort of within the Department of Transportation and also very much at a state and local level. Uh, and so there there needs to be a a a sort of wholesale rethink, which goes to your point about you know, the value of, of sort of a separate standalone concept. But the reality is, you know, you're not going to take highways and just say, well, the portion of highways 
that deals with autonomous vehicles is going to exclusively be over here in this new entity. But the portion of highways that legacy vehicles are going to be on, eh, they'll be in this other place, even though it's literally the same piece of pavement. Uh, and that's just highways. I and mean, that's, you know, that's urban, urban streets, rural streets, suburban streets. Um, there is a, a, you know, I mean, I know in our neighborhood, you know, there's when, when it uh, does snow, which is unusual in DC, but when it does, um, you know, there's some roads that get plowed faster than others, uh, simply because some are under the, the uh, jurisdiction of the state department of transportation and some are local, the county. Um, and so, you know, add the layer onto that of, well, if you need the roads to actually have, uh, communications infrastructure in them to better communicate with the vehicles that are on the road, uh, who's responsible? Does the type of communication change when I move from a county road to a state road to a, uh, a federal highway infrastructure? I mean, right now the feds don't control highways at all other than through grants. So there's a lot of open questions that even no matter how good um, any particular company is doing in a, in a limited test environment doesn't necessarily make that immediate jump to the larger, uh, how do we get this right? How do we get it right in a way that will continue our um, iterative process to integrating this technology in a way that helps reduce deaths and injuries and, and crashes uh, for, you know, from motor vehicles, but at the same time, not rush it in a way that puts us in a scenario where consumers want nothing to do with it uh, and are afraid of it. And, and you know, that, that's a fine line. Look, I totally agree. It is a super fine line. And in a moment, we're going to touch on briefly, of course, Tesla, since you also already alluded to them. Thank you for that. Yeah, <laughs> um, sure. With respect to that fine line and indeed the, the threat, the risk to consumers, if these things aren't deployed properly, of course, there's a risk. Obviously, we've heard a lot about, okay, let me just talk about them for a moment now then. Why not? Sure. Um, so uh, Center for Auto Safety just tweeted, I guess, what, a day ago? Um that NTSB has decided that the Tesla and the federal government need to be doing more to prevent deadly autopilot-related crashes. NHTSA is the true villain in this story and hasn't yet stepped up to protect consumers. Um, how do we, uh, let's see, how shall I ask this question? Um, look, driving cars, human-driven cars, it's easy to argue that, hey, we humans don't do that badly after all. And yet from a pure numbers point of view, I mean, it is basically the most dangerous thing that any of us do on any given day, right? Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, surely it should be relatively straightforward to determine quantitatively that sort of crossover point at which, on average, let's just pick on Tesla just just for the sure. heck of it. Um, at which point Tesla's autopilot is demonstrably quantitatively safer, right? And I think that if we can just show this, then never mind the fact that there are still plenty of risk. Isn't that the minimum test? Are they at least better than, or perhaps even equal to, on average, human-driven cars? Isn't that the fine line? Um, or should it be rather is how I should ask you the question. So if I, if I understand the question correctly, I, I think the answer would be yes. I mean, I think the, the, the question that I would answer your question with is twofold. One, how do we define safe? Um, and two, uh, who is responsible for providing the data to make that determination? How about just a grandma or a little kid test? What's that? Say that again. So I often use the grandma or little kid test to yeah. gauge 
neighborhood safety? Like, where would you be okay saying to your grandma, hey, go take a walk alone at night? Or here's the car for your first kid because, you know, it's the safest car. So what about that test? Like, my parents just turned 80 and I emphatically begged them to please get a Tesla just because of je- not because I thought they were going to use autopilot and indeed mm-hmm. they don't for mm-hmm. better or worse, mm-hmm. but at least from a crash structure safety point of view. Right. And so what if that's just a sufficient safety metric? Um, not, not the crash structure point of view, but the general consumer acceptance of a thing, which is, Hey, this is probably safer. And then checking to see whether objectively it tends to be safer over time. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's an interesting entry point to the conversation, because I would argue that the reason uh, you perceive Tesla to be a safe car for a relative or for anyone else is based on uh, its performance in crash tests. And the reason that we know that is the crash tests, um, the, the crash test standards are set by the federal government, uh, which, by the way, they are hopelessly out of date. And, and we've been trying to get them out, improved for at least five years. Um, but leave that aside, uh, Tesla does perform very well in, uh, in crash testing. And, uh, and so we often note that, that it's occupant protection is, is excellent. Um, that is a separate thought entirely from the utility, uh, good or bad of its, uh, advanced driver assist system, you know, ADAS, uh, which they call autopilot, which we have vociferously objected to that terminology, but whatever you want to call it, their ADAS is a um, important conversation to uh, piece, but their occupant protection is based on how it does in a crash. Now, obviously the best occupant protection is avoiding crashes, right? We all know that, but uh, at the moment we still have, I think the number is something on the range of 6 million plus crashes a year in the United States. Um, Mm -hmm. Cars crash. And uh, sometimes, often, they crash into, they are solo crashes. In fact, I think solo crashes remain the, 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 the number one type of crashes. Um, but, or they crash into other cars. Um, so how vehicles perform when they crash in terms of protecting the occupants inside uh, is very important. That's you know, why we pushed early and often for airbags uh, to be standard and, you know, for passenger airbags and for seatbelts to be um, mandatory. And we continue to push for things like simple things that don't require uh, artificial intelligence, such as a reminder that you should put your seatbelt on in the back seat, not just the front seat. Um, So there's a lot of things that can get us uh, a, a long way down the road towards protecting people inside the car. But I'll leave that aside. But I, I do think it's sort of an important point that the reason, um, one of the reasons appropriately that uh, a certain segment of the population perceives Teslas to be uh, as safe, if not safer than other cars, is the vehicle's performance in crash tests. Now, leave that aside, and we move over to the conversation about their ADAS uh, or autopilot. Um, Tesla claims uh, that vehicles on autopilot are safer than other vehicles. Uh, Tesla used bases those claims on data that, uh, two, two different types of data. One, data that Tesla has that they don't share with anyone. So there's no way to verify what they're saying. And quite right. frankly, their track record of being transparent and honest is pretty shoddy. Two, uh, they base it on data released by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. 
However, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has actually issued a cease and desist letter to Tesla for making the claims the way they were making them and using the data the way it was using it because it said it was misrepresenting what the data said. So to your point, when the data comes along, it demonstrates that autopilot or any other ADAS is safer uh, than um, than human drivers, then sure. But I'd also put this put this thought uh, and, and put a flag in it for for conversation purposes. When we say safer, are we talking about a drunk safer than a drunk driver, safer than a driver who's texting, safer than a driver who's drowsy, or safer than the average driver who is not doing any of those things? Um, and so this is an important. Um, part of the conversation that goes as much to policy and um, political preference, and I mean that with a small p, not not party preference, but sort of how you think about the role of regulation in the world, as opposed to um, uh, thinking about um, just sort of sheer marketing, you know, declarations that something is or is not safer. You know, uh, the average uh, for deaths, for example, for uh, vehicle, for people who travel in cars in the United States is about 1.15 uh, deaths per 100 million vehicle miles traveled. Now, most of us, um, I in fact would, would argue almost all of us, will never travel 100 million vehicle miles in our lives, which is why it's pretty confident to say most of us uh, fortunately, will not die from a crash. Uh, however, there are still 40,000 traffic crash deaths a year in the United States. That is far too many. But so far, for example, we're, depending on how you count them, we're still south of 50 million vehicle miles traveled for all the autonomous vehicles put together. And if you talk about the level four sort of test vehicles, uh, and again, depends on how you count them and, and who's you count in there. Do you count Uber and Waymo? Or do you count, but that said, we've already had a death. We've had some crashes. So does that mean that it's really, that, that for those vehicles, it's two per 100 million vehicle miles traveled? So which is twice as many as, as current drivers? Probably not because it's such a small sample size. But it's, so it's really important that when we talk about data, when we talk about statistics, when we talk about safer, safer than what? is super important. And, you know, and uh, I think that gets lost in the conversation and all of our excitement about the possibility of eliminating things like drunk driving and driving while texting and driving while drowsy. Those are all important things to eliminate, but we need the sort of larger conversation about how do we compare apples to apples and not apples to coconuts. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and just a quick comment on that. And then with respect to your time, two points I want to kind of segue into. Sure. Look, this also raises the big issue of, um, well, really the safety paradox, right? So obviously, to your point about autopilot's risk factors, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of stories about people falling asleep. And I don't know if I shared with you once my pretty unnerving experience uh, on a very familiar drive for about an hour from Silicon Valley back to San Francisco late at night with my wife. And we were uh, actually borrowing my parents' Tesla, and uh, I, I remember having this very weird feeling of, gosh, I'm pretty sleepy. And because it was on autopilot most of the way, I became very much aware of the fact that, ironically, I was more likely to fall asleep if I were truly that fatigued mm -hmm. than if I'd been in a regular car. But the irony, of course, is that if I were to have fallen asleep, well, there's a pretty decent non-zero chance that I would 
probably survive, not to mention others around me, because presumably autopilot would have done something. <laughs> hopefully, maybe. Well, um, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, so maybe, hopefully. I'm well, glad I'm guaranteed to die if I fall asleep <laughs> in a regular car, right? Guaranteed. <laughs> well, you say that, but people unfortunately do it every day. Literally every day, people fall asleep in cars yeah. and, and right. injure themselves. And then sometimes people fall asleep and then catch themselves before the, for sure something bad happens. But, you know, we have a sleep deprivation issue in this country that goes far beyond any car issues. Um, <laughs> so, true. you know, it, the, I, I think what frustrates folks like us, um, and, and we're not unique in this, is that um, some of the capabilities of technology, including some of the, the, the technology that, that Tesla has and has, has pioneered, um, could be incredibly helpful if used and deployed in a way that uh, is in concert with educating drivers, is uh, educating drivers as to the uh, abilities and limitations of the technology. And so you know, the number of YouTube videos that you can find of people acting, whether intentionally or unintentionally, as if the, the, the Tesla autopilot is um, a perfect robot car uh, is, is a scary number. Um, and, you know, we don't see nearly as many for the other systems, which in some cases are relatively equal um, in, in terms of their capabilities. Um, and that, you know, raises questions about what is it about these vehicles that is, seems to be, uh, resulting in more people treating them as being more capable than they are. Uh, we think it's, it's some of its marketing. We think some of its terminology, but, uh, some of it is also technology. You know, the, the, the lack of a driver monitoring system in Tesla, the lack that the reliance upon haptic, uh, reminders to take back over the wheel versus uh, an eyeline ca camera uh, is a significant difference. Now, there can be conversations about the utility of one versus the other, and there can be conversations about preference and, and, um, and privacy, and, and those are worthwhile conversations. But I think it gets lost um, that a lot of the ADAS technology, forward collision warning would be a great one, and uh, you know, automatic emergency braking, um, there are no standards for any of these things. And, well, that's one of the things I was pointing yeah. out with, by my idea of the FAVA, right? We need to have things. We even standardize how headlights and taillights look and function on their range and brightness and angle and so on, or even the diffusion, I think. Um, so exactly. There aren't any baselines even. We don't even know whether one sort of tech is better than the other, right? So, um, but, but you said a thing I just have to pick on before that segue, I promised a moment ago. Um, this is kind of neat. I, I like what you said about the um, sort of uh, – one of your comments about consumers and their understanding. So um, I'm sure you're familiar with PAVE, the pathway to AV education. Um, they're basically, um, so I agree that there's a big need for consumer understanding and education generally, of course, but I just thought of something based on what you said. What if part of the problem actually is more social and less technological? What I mean by that is this, have you driven by any chance in Germany ever? I have not, I have not. Okay, so I wonder if you see where I'm going with this, though, because one of the things, so I've driven quite a bit in Germany and, and actually really everywhere in Europe, but Germany I'm going to pick on specifically because okay. the dedication um, and attention and the, the responsibility with which Germans drive mm -hmm. is none in the world. Because first of all, it's very, very, very difficult and expensive to get a, your license in Germany. And frankly, it's very easy and very cheap to lose your license forever 
right? Forever. Yeah. And my point is, is that when you see people driving on the freeway, when you consider the fact that on the, frankly, the limited portions of the Autobahn, which are still de-restricted on speed, mm-hmm. the fact that they have so few accidents per vehicle miles driven is astonishing. And that's really a testament to indeed the greater responsibility of driving. One of the funny jokes used to be that the reason why German cars tended not to have useful cup holders is because, well, in Germany, they don't have cup holders because that's a distraction. Right. Right. My point is drivers in Germany tend to treat driving rather like pilots treat flying. I wonder whether, to this point about education, whether a lot of it tends to be really about, let's face it, we Americans as a public, as a society, we are pretty cavalier about driving. We don't really have any sort of properly educated discipline and responsibility sense that, well, Germans have, for instance. And so what if it's necessary to temper that technology with just a really profound, yeah, education that really hinges on the responsibility element and makes it, frankly, much, much easier to, well, yeah, lose our licenses. I actually proposed just the other day in an episode, texting while driving, getting a slap on the wrist and a ticket, that's not sufficient. It should just be a DUI because effectively that is kind of what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, it's certainly an interesting way to think about it. And I think there's a um, <clears throat> unfortunate de-emphasis on the responsibility of um, of our drivers, um, and, you know, and, and so, you know, one of the, one of the examples I always give is, you know, in the United States, you uh, get your driver's license in many States at 16 and you sort of believe, uh, other than perhaps the distinction between driving an automatic and, dri- and driving a manual stick, um, that for the rest of your life, uh, which could, you know, your driving life, let's say, which could be 70 years. 75 years, uh, you never need to know anything else about a car other than I should just be able to get in it and drive. Uh, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> right. And so let's think about the 16 year old who got their license 75 years ago. <laughs> right. And what that car was and what a new car is today. Um, yeah. you know, that may, perhaps is an extreme example, but I know very few people who. Um, when they purchase a new vehicle, take advantage of even uh, training opportunities that the dealerships provide to them. They go in, they take a test drive, the dealer points to a couple of things. This is what that symbol means. This is what that symbol means. You should read it all in the manual, which I think we can all acknowledge very, very few people do. Um, and then people just go on their way. And the um, that is the reality of how we, we treat vehicles in the U.S. Now, could we change our regulatory structure to... Um, make it more difficult to, to get a license? Sure, we could. Um, are there things that could be done that would be relatively cost-free or incredibly inexpensive short of changing our licensing prescribed system? Yeah, we could do things along the lines of um, you know standardizing what we call technology. I mean, right now, I think there's 45 different names for automatic emergency braking. Totally agree. Um, but yes, so, absolutely. you know, there are things that we could do to, this goes back to our point of, of the technology Technology should meet people where they are, uh, as opposed to saying, wow, people should just stop texting and driving. Of course they should, and it should be illegal. Um, but we have a problem where we have introduced this uh, th- this technology into the, the environment where cars are, and how are we going to deal with it? Are we going to eliminate it simply by telling people to stop doing it? Uh, you know, one example we look at is drunk driving deaths have tr- decreased dramatically over the last 50 years. Uh, in part because of education, but also in part because of technology and enforcement. Uh, but we still have far too many thousands, thousands upon thousands yeah. upon thousands of drunk driving deaths every year. 
it can't be that these people don't know they shouldn't do it, right? I, it, at some point, I think we, we're beyond the point of like, oh, I didn't know I shouldn't drive drunk. Now they can argue, I didn't know I was drunk, but they, they, they know they shouldn't be driving drunk. And then you're sort of in a deficit. So I just leave that as a, we need to have a sort of fundamental rethink about um, how we license folks and, and sort of how we educate folks and the burden on drivers. But at the same time, technology can help us get there. But I also make one other note about Germany. Um, you know, one of the other reasons that the driving is, um, they're able to do what they do in terms of how they, they regulate driving is, here's an example. If you have a recall on your vehicle in Germany and you don't bring it into the dealership, they can come to your house, to your oh, yeah. car in, 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 in the driveway and yeah. boot it. They can put a boot on your car for not fixing the recall. Um, because they understand that the danger is not just to you and the people in your car, but to everyone on the road. Uh, exactly. and that's another example, you know, we have a, we have an estimated 70 million vehicles on the road in the United States that have unrepaired recalls. Yeah. That's um, so that's about one out of every four. So it, of, of vehicles that are, that, that are subject to recall. Um, so there's a real difference in sort of philosophy and how we think about things. And I would actually bring this all the way back around to AVs, which is a question I often get. I don't know if you're going to ask, but I will, I will volunteer this anyway, which is you know, <laughs> where, where do you think um, uh, autonomous vehicles are going to sort of be adopted first uh, in terms of you know, geography and, and, and nation state? And I often point to, you know, it's more likely to be in an autocratic state, uh, a Singapore, a China. Uh, Monaco, someplace where they can order it. They can say, this is what we're doing. We don't care, one, if people die along the way, and two, we don't care if you don't like it. This is what we're doing. Um, we're gonna, everyone's going to get one of these, and we're going to build the infrastructure, and we're going to do it. And the United States, uh, which the reason I love this country, you know, we have a lot of individual rights, and we have a lot of sort of say and control over our lives, and that's going to make, that makes for messy regulatory process, that makes for messy um, uh, fits and starts in terms of how we progress and fall back. We're talking about new technology adoption, um, but also often leads to the most innovative minds and the most innovative uh, leaps when when we talk about this sort of thing. So, you know, th there's it, we're a ways away, um, but we need to keep pushing the envelope. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, just a quick footnote on your comment about Germany. Interestingly, you're right. A lot of it's a philosophically different approach as well. For instance, drunk driving in Germany is treated, if I understand correctly, as a psychological medical issue rather than criminal. Just kind of an interesting sort of FYI, which I find sure. Sure. fascinating. Um, so again, um, if I can have five more minutes of your time, I yeah. should have properly yeah. anticipated that this would be so cool. <laughs> Keep going. The, 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 the segue I wanted to just touch on briefly, uh, is this concept of over the year updates. Cause it turned up once, well, several times actually in the past for me just in a few, a uh, couple sentences or less. What do you think? I mean, is this something that makes sense that it, it should be, well, to your point about cars with de defects generally, mm -hmm. and if it's a yeah. software thing, or indeed a mechanical one that can be updated with an OTA updates. I mean, isn't this a thing that we could imagine should eventually be mandated that in fact, manufacturers must make available over the year updates? Um, that's an interesting way of looking at it. So I, the, the short answer is I, whether it's mandated or not, I think will eventually be in that place. Although you can't over the air update a, a new brake pad. Um, so, you know, there's going to be pieces that you can't do over here. <laughs> sure. um, 
Okay, and, but to the extent possible, at least. Right, right, no, no, I, I fully, I, I, but I don't mean that facetiously. I mean, I think sometimes we have these conversations. Yeah. It's like soon we won't need, you know, we won't need to do recalls and we won't need repair shops because we'll do it all over the air. And like, well, you can't, you can't do everything over the air. Um, right. So I think that's one, that, that, that's an important caveat. But to the extent uh, they're available, yeah. But just like with everything else, um, we'll note something that we currently see in software updates that are often not pushed out over the air because the vehicles aren't capable of them. But currently, we see a lot of uh, service campaigns come out of manufacturers that are software updates because they're, they're updating uh, because there's a problem that they're they are addressing, often not termed recalls. Um, because they don't want the bad press of recalls. Uh, and so not everyone winds up getting the software flash um, because it's they don't realize that, it, that, it, that it's actually important. Um, now, does that get eliminated with it over the air? Probably, presuming that everyone's got equal amounts of access to internet connectivity wherever they are and it updates correctly. We don't have one of those deals where I can hit ignore on my phone sort of thing. Um but then you add on the level of it is sometimes we will see attempts at using a software update to try and essentially circumvent the need to replace or repair a hardware part um, that we will sort of, we will, instead of actually forcing the fix on the hardware, well, um, we'll just move the car into a limp home mode uh, if this thing happens so that then you got to bring it into the dealership and get the thing fixed instead of you know, actually getting it fixed on the front end. So we're for over-the-air updates with the, with the caveat that there's an important oversight means necessary that is still going to need that third-party objective. Um, government uh, regulating, regulators saying, is this being done right? Is, is this effective? Is it actually addressing what you're saying it's going to address? I mean, we, you know, we all saw sort of the throttling that Apple was doing with its updates, and that's for its phone. Oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. and so those are, you know, or, uh, Tesla, for example, to come back to Tesla, just because they're, they're an easy yeah. example because they, they are so far advanced in some of this stuff. When they changed the battery life, uh, ahead of, uh, I think it was a hurricane in Florida. They just sort of gave everyone yeah. uh, extra, which on the one hand is, it's amazing and that's great. But on the other hand, it's, well, did they have that capability all along and were consumers aware of that and consumers have chosen and could Tesla throttle it back down if I, if they chose to, I mean, it just asks a lot of questions that are actually much less about Tesla, to be perfectly honest. It's just an example of where this happened and more about, are there going to be rules around this or is it wild, wild west? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great response actually. Um, and by the way, and to the point of customer acceptance, I'll just leave you with, with this thought. We, we actually have started deploying this, what we think is the largest survey of its kind ever conducted in the world um, on consumer acceptance of AVs. It's a pretty, lengthy survey it's like 10 or 15 minutes to complete it it's but it's pretty fascinating it just kind of fyi i think you'll find it interesting and frankly i'd be remiss not to say that if you did like it um i i would encourage you to share it as best you can because the data accumulated from this i think would help if not answer questions at least suggest directions in which things can go from here on out so happy um, to you take can a just look. Find um, sorry uh, happy to take a look yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. Yeah, it's over on our website at hogansco.com. I'll send you the link later. But sure. um, Jason, I think that's probably a wrap for today. It's been pretty amazing. I know it's getting late on your side of the country. Um, yeah, I can't thank you enough for joining me on this. It's, it's been really yeah. great. No, my pleasure. And you know, let, let us know when it drops. Awesome. Will do.
Thanks so much. Take care. Have a good evening. Yep. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye now. All right. Well, that is a wrap for today. And indeed, this week. Coming up in the next several weeks, we've got a whole slew of amazing guests set to uh, hit the podcast. So do keep your eyes and ears peeled. And as a friendly reminder, if you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast, please do so on Apple Podcasts now. That way you'll get notified as soon as new episodes drop. And speaking of which, again, a huge thank you to all of you who have contributed the five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts, where I maintain a solid 5.0. Please, if you haven't yet submitted your rating, please do so. These really do mean a lot to me. So thanks very much again for listening. Have a wonderful weekend. Until next time, that'll be Tuesday the 10th. Take care. Bye-bye.